our culture. Our culture is filled with all sorts of us versus them, from food to sports. But let's get a little more serious. Let's, let's talk politics, right? You have red versus blue. You have conservative versus liberal. Think about the last few years. You have masks versus no masks, vax versus no vax, open borders versus closed borders. Folks, if we've learned anything over these last two years, it's that we live in a divisive culture. You have to pick a side in our culture. You have to pick a side. Now, I'm not talking about Christianity and not Christianity. I'm talking about just in culture. What they tell you, you either stand for this or you don't. If you don't, I might as well not even know you. Hot topics in debates. We cannot disagree with one another in our culture, even as Christians, right? Like, we can't disagree as Christians. And if we do, as Christians, we're going to bash one another on social media, and do everything we can to avoid any type of interaction with our brother or sister in Christ because they have a different view than us. You'll, start, you'll stop shopping, eating. At, you'll stop shopping where you normally shop and see that person. You'll stop going to the same restaurant so that you don't see that person unless it's Chick-fil-A, unity, peace, wins. We'll get there. Uh, but you, you really go out of your way to not... Be around those people. I've even seen it. We will switch churches. When we don't like one thing, we will go to the next. And when we don't like that thing anymore, we will go to the next thing. And what that does is that just creates this culture, this canceling culture where, matter of fact, we can't even be friends as Christians because we differ in our views. That's what culture tells us. We can't be friends. You think this, and I think this, so therefore Christ no longer reconciles all. There's no peace or no unity because we think differently, and there's no peace to be had. We'll go our separate ways. We will no longer be friends. And that, though that seems a bit extreme, I will tell you firsthand, it has been a reality over these last two years. I have seen it in our church. I have seen it in the church. I have seen it in our culture. And it's become a reality for many these last few years. I think it's because, if the question is why, well, why is that? I think it's because we, as Christians, we've allowed culture to dictate our relationships. We've allowed social media and the influx of news to constantly bombard our hearts instead of the word of truth wash over our souls. We've allowed walls of hostility to build back up in our hearts due to our differences. We've focused on so many open-handed issues that it's caused us to look past the grace that has been lavished on us. We've gotten what it means, we've forgotten what it means to be a family of families, brothers and sisters. We've forgotten how far off we once were. And just how sweet it is that God himself brought us near to him. We've forgotten that. 
And though we feel the, the angst and the pressure now in our souls, that us versus them, it's not something new. God's word transcends all of time, and we have his word to show us this. It's not something new. In our text this morning, Paul is going to continue to shed light on what it means to be united in Christ. And how is that even possible amidst one of the most intense rivalries? You think UT and A&M have an intense rivalry. We will see in the scriptures the Jews versus the Gentiles. God brings them near to himself, and he breaks down every barrier and wall of hostility, and we're going to see that, and all of their belittlement of each other, and all of their resentment towards one another, and all of their hatred towards one another. It's Christ who brings them near, and he gives them a message, Paul does, by the Spirit, gives them a message that unites all believers. Let's look at our text this morning, Ephesians Chapter 2, let's look at verse 11 and 12. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, and without God in the world. Paul starts, so then remember. He continues to build on this beautiful truth of what it means to be united in Christ, chosen, predestined, redeemed, adopted, sealed with the Spirit. He continues to build on this and says, remember, you were once dead, But thank God he doesn't leave us there. Now we are made alive. We saw earlier in chapter 2. And then last week, not just made alive, we saw that we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, that the master creator actually loves you enough that he doesn't just save you from, he saves you into something, and then he makes you his masterpiece. You are his workmanship. And all along, the Spirit is doing this work in you And you are with Christ, in Christ, united to and belonging in him. Now it's interesting here, as we look at this text, Paul, at the beginning of chapter 2, he calls our attention to being dead to our sin. He says, remember, you were dead. At this point, first part, verse of chapter 2, he's calling all of our attention to, all believers. He says, all of you were dead. And now, he shifts. And what does he say? Remember that at one time you were Gentiles. Here's why that is significant. Look how Paul describes the Gentile reality. Quote, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. Now, to explain that, for Jews, circumcision represented a covenant, a promise established by God. Family gathering, the word circumcised, you're welcome. You can have that conversation with your children on the ride home. But, For Jews, it was a tradition for them to become circumcised as a way to represent 
their salvation. Like this is what marked their identity as Jews. They were God's chosen people. Now Gentiles were not Jews. So therefore they were not circumcised. And here's the catch. The Jews loved to remind them of that. I mean, what does Paul say? Called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. Can you imagine being walking down the grocery store? Hey, there's the uncircumcised. Like, that was what they were marked with. Like, this is worse than the kid who shows up at school every week with something new and says, hey, yeah, look what I got. You don't have this. Like, it's worse than that. This is their identity and culture. This is what they have been marked with. And Paul says, hey, remember, you were once called this by those who were circumcised. Now, that seems cruel, but Paul's not cruel at all. In fact, he's drawing them out of this false identity only to draw them into their new identity. He's addressing just the Gentiles here. He's going to shift and address all of us here in just a second. But he's saying, remember, you who were called that are no longer that. Reminding them of their new identity. Called uncircumcised. It was then you were without Christ. So what did it mean to be uncircumcised? You were without Christ. They were Christless. Gentiles were foreigners to the scripture. They didn't know the scriptures. They chose not to participate in the covenant lifestyle that the Jewish customs offered. And as a Christless people, what does Paul say? Well, they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Okay, they were excluded. They were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Christless people. They were homeless in the sense that they were foreigners. They knew nothing of God's word. Matter of fact, they desired to live a life on their own terms. They were strangers to the covenant-keeping God. They didn't know the promises that God had kept with his people for years and generation after generation. They didn't know that. They didn't grow up reading about the covenants that God had made with Abraham and Isaac or with Jacob and Israel and David. They didn't know of the glorious riches that Paul described so beautifully in chapter 1. They knew nothing of that. They were hopeless because they had no knowledge of Jesus. So Paul's not picking on them and saying, hey, remember. He's letting them know how good and how sweet it is, even more that God considers you his. Now, this was their choice. The Gentile way of living, this was their choice. They willfully cho chose to live Christless lives. In fact, Paul notes in other letters that the Gentiles lived a host hostile life towards God. They hated anyone not like them. That's why Paul uses all of chapter 1 to just continually pepper in as many rich truths about God as he can. That's why he begs the Spirit towards the end of chapter 1 to make known to them all of the glorious riches. So their hearts would be enlightened, as Paul says, so that they may know the hope of Jesus. The Jesus they knew nothing about. Now a little bit more on this, this cultural un unrest here between Jews and Gentiles. A little bit more about this rivalry. It was extremely intense. So intense 
that the Jews said things like this. It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth. Why? Because that meant they were bringing another heathen into the world. Like, just try to wrap your mind around that. A Jewish person, it was unlawful to help the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. It was unlawful to help them. Why? Because those heathens, we need less of them, and we need more of us. It's said that some Jews even went to the extent of thinking that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. Hatred in their hearts towards those who are not like them. Like this tension between the Jews and Gentiles, it was rough. And it was building in this culture. It goes way beyond any Longhorn or Aggie rivalry. It goes beyond red or blue. It runs thick in this culture. It is their identity. It's what marks them. And hear me on this. It wasn't even based, what marks them wasn't even based on social, political, socioeconomic, wealth, health, or cultural division. It was spiritual. It wasn't even that they didn't look like them. It's that the Gentiles knew nothing of their Jesus and the Jews didn't want anything to do with them. And it was us versus them and them versus us. And it had nothing to do with socioeconomic status. It had everything to do with spiritual status in the eyes of the Gentiles who had not and didn't want or the eyes of the Jews who had everything and did not want anybody else to have. Like, I want you to feel, I want you to feel this tension that is building in our text. Because we live in the same tension today, folks. We do. Like, if you're a Jew back in the day, I want you to to process this. Go with me in this scene. If you're a Jew back in the day and you're hearing this read, this letter that Paul wrote from a prison cell, because he's going against what's exactly happening in culture... He's thrown in prison. He's writing this. Go to this with me. As a Jew, you're hearing this read at your Sunday gathering. Like you hear all of this, and up to this point, things are going pretty good. You're hearing things that you've known about, right? If you take chapter 1, verse 1, up to what we just read, you who were once uncircumcised called that by the ones who were circumcised. Up to this point, you're hearing things about you that you knew your entire life. You're hearing about God's faithfulness, his grace that has been lavished on them, the once promised Messiah who was to come, the prophecies that were being fulfilled in the days of Christ, his birth, his life, his baptism and ministry, his death and his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. All of these things are, have taken place, but something else has happened. And it's uncomfortable for them. Imagine being in that living room. Jews and Gentiles, now alike, Christ followers. Something is uncomfortable for them. Why? Because this good news of Jesus has spread rapidly. But the message is not just for the Jews. But to all who hear the word of the Lord. And who have put their faith in Jesus. All sorts of people at this moment in history are being saved. Those who were far off being made alive and now united again in Christ. 
And as, as these Christians are gathered in this house, imagine Jew and Gentile sitting across from each other as this re- letter is read aloud. And as a Jew, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's right, these are uncircumcised Gentiles. And as a Gentile, you're probably thinking, what in the world am I doing here with all of these Jews? Family, the message is this message that's about to be given is the only message that can cross fundamental divides of any culture, of any language, any demographic, young or old, poor or wealthy, any nations, any tribe, any race. Listen to what Paul tells the Gentile believers. This is who you were, uncircumcised, Christless, homeless, foreigners, hopeless, but now. Look with me in your scripture. Like, Paul is so good with these but now, right? Like, I mean, the whole, the whole letter of Ephesians is, hey, remember this, but now, he says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you, you who were far away, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Do you feel this tension that's taking place in this moment of time? I love, absolutely love how Scripture interprets Scripture. Years before this, listen to Isaiah chapter 33, verse 13. The prophet Isaiah says this years before. He says, you who are far off hear, you who are far off hear what I have done, you who are near know my strength. You, Gentiles, who wanted nothing to do with Christ, who were far off, listen to what Christ has done for you. It's you that has now been brought near by the blood of Christ. You, Jews, who are near, you know all of this. You know the covenants and the promises. You've tasted and seen the faithful goodness of Jesus. But you Jews who are near, listen to what Christ is doing. He's made both groups one. The Gentiles don't become Jews. The Jews don't become Gentiles. He says, you all become one new man. A new race is what Paul says. Christ made the sacrifice for both Jew and and Gentile in order, hear me, that they might be united and reconciled back to him. He didn't look at them and say, you need to be like them or you need to be like them. He says, actually, no, it's, it's, a, new, it's a new race. I've reconciled you all back to me. Now, Paul's going to unpack this more practically, uh, chapters four through six. You're going to see that. But, but now, for now, he puts this beautiful truth before each of them. And he does it in a way that totally wrecks any sense of hostility. 
any sense of favoritism, any sense of racism or elitism, any sense of rivalry that seems to be stirring and present gets trashed. Paul says we're, we're not fighting for skin anymore. Like, it's not about our our political stance. It's not even about our race or ethnicity. It's about the grace that has been lavished on us. It's about Jesus, who's the only one who can take our dead hearts and make them alive. And as he makes them alive, he gives them new identity. That's beautiful truth. You're no longer slaves You're no longer children of wrath. You're no longer circumcised or uncircumcised. You're no longer even Jews and Gentiles. You are now one body. And the result of this, hear me, is peace. To the Father and to one another. That's what Paul's talking about. The result of this new race, this new family of families is peace to the Father and to one another. So how can this be? What does that even mean? Well, peace is found in a person. As Advent season kicks off, I know we're going to hear this in the next few weeks, but Isaiah 9, again, the prophet Isaiah 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Look at verse 14. Christ is our peace. Look at verse 15. Christ creates in himself one new man resulting in peace. Look at verse 16. Christ came and he proclaimed. Jesus came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away in peace to those who were near. You see, the Lord Jesus truly is the peace of peace. And as the Prince of Peace, look what Christ does. I love this. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility between all of them. As the ultimate peacemaker, like Paul knew this as he was writing. He lived in this tension, the same tension you and I feel. As someone who hated Christians. He lived in this. So that's why he says what he says. He breaks down the wall of hostility. Now hear me specifically on this. This is meant to be graphic. He broke down the wall of hostility. And here's why. Because on the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple read this. No foreigner. Paul addresses that. You were once a foreigner. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone, in other words, any Gentile, anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuring death. That wall in Christ is gone. I, I also find it interesting here that Jesus is a peacemaker. Y'all know what a peacemaker is? You can explain that one to your kids too, right? Like peacemaker on your hip. There's a reason it's called that. Christ was not a peacekeeper, to be very clear. He didn't come in and appease the, his chosen people, the Jews. He didn't come in and appease the Gentiles and say, well, it's just all about grace, forget the law. He didn't come in and do that. He came in and made one new race. 
united to him and in him and for him. He says, Jesus is the peacemaker. Blessed is the peacemaker in the Sermon on the Mount, not keeper. He didn't come to keep it. Why? Because there's no peace outside of Christ. There's nothing to keep. He came and said, I'm the prince of peace. I am the man. I am the dude. I'm the one who brings all peace. There's no peace outside of him. He made peace. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 57, he continues and he says, The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far. Again, y'all, like God's word points all to Jesus. I love how it just, man, years before this, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, hears from the Lord and says, Peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Jesus is our peace. He came to uh, uh, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law. Well, what does that mean? This isn't to be confused with Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fill it. Christ came to fulfill the law of the prophets, absolutely. Instead, what Paul's referencing here is that Jesus came to abolish the Jewish ceremonial law. Like these, all these extra things that were added to God's word, all these little ceremonies, they were extra things that the Jews put on so that the Gentiles couldn't partake. All of their washings, their restrictions, now instead... There's free access to the Father through the grace that has been lavished on us in the Son, by the Spirit. Jesus is our peace. Lastly, what else did Jesus do? Well, he reconciled the new humanity, this new race that he created. He reconciled that, them, us, to God. Christ killed disunity. And here's how he did it. He put it to death in his own death. It's his sacrifice that serves as the source of this peace. Again, Isaiah 53 points to this. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Christ Jesus was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we now are healed by his wounds. Are you seeing the beauty of this? Of Paul writing this letter saying, hey, it's less about you and less about you. It's all about Jesus. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace. When Christ truly reigns, disunity has been put to death. So hear me on this. Our new identity in Christ, being united to him, is what paves the way for unity amongst not only our family of families here, but the entire universal church family of families, Christians across the globe. Like this is who Jesus is. This is what he does. He makes all things new. He unites all things to himself. He is our peace. The question that you have to answer, is he your peace? I don't know that for you. I don't know, children, what's going on in your heart. Adult, I don't know what you're wrestling with. But you have to answer that. Is 
Jesus truly your peace? Have you put your faith in him? Have you trusted him? The beauty of this is, look with me, Paul says, you can have the same peace. If that's you this morning, you can have that. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Over and over and over again, Paul points us to the beauty of God's grace through the Son and says, you you can get in on this. You can have this true peace. I'm not talking about like happiness in this world where you have all things going right. Like that would be great. I'm talking about the peace when things actually go wrong, where you can stand in your trials and your suffering and all of the things that have you backed up against the wall like the Israelites did at the Red Sea. And you can say, God, where are you? I don't know, but I trust you. And only God can do what he can do. That's where true peace comes from. Where you submit everything to him and say, God, it's all yours. I'm here. What do you want? What are you doing? I just want to be a vessel for you. The gospel takes that tension that they felt. Or maybe that tension you might feel with other Christians who are not like you. And says, but now, now you've been brought near to God. That's the language he uses. Been brought near to God through the blood of Christ. It's through his death that the hostility in our hearts has been put to death. Ethnic superiority dies when you die to Christ. Hatred between peoples, tribes, languages, ethnicities dies when you die to Christ. No matter your background, hear me, no matter your history, your upbringing, we can be at peace together in Christ. He made us one. He tore down the wall. In Jesus, all of the covenants are fulfilled. And through his bloodshed, a new one is made. He created, he reconciled, he proclaimed, he restored. And this is the peace that he says in John 14 that he leaves with you. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do you have that peace in your life? I think practically speaking, we as the church, this family of family that I'm held responsible for, I'll stand before God, my creator, responsible for you, for the sheep that he's entrusted to me. I take that seriously. Do we, the church, understand that we now have this responsibility to all the world, to every race, ethnicity, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. Peace and reconciliation has to be our rallying cry. It has to be. I'm not saying you all have to be best friends. I'm saying if Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he's what unites all things to him, including us, Jew, Gentile, white, black, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, then that's what we're unified on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. People will always be different. You are different than everyone that you're sitting next to. You have different personalities, different quirks. I know some of them. You know mine. You know my faults, my strengths, your strengths, your weaknesses. Some of you know each other's political stances. We have to be okay with that because the goal is not to look more like me or for you, it's not for, I just wish other people looked like me. 
wish they voted like me. I wish they just did life like me. That's how I am when I drive, right? Like as I'm going down the highway, why can you not drive like me? Get out of the way, or you're going too fast, or you're going too slow. Left lane's passing only, right? Like, why can't people be like me? The goal is not to look like me. The goal is to look more like Jesus. Not Alito Christians, not American Christians. The goal will always be to look more like Jesus. Y'all, we have to fight for unity. And that starts with humility. You have to remember that we, Christian in this room, were once Gentiles far off. But he's brought us near. We have to fight for unity. Focus on each other's strengths and become an expert in each other's strengths, not our weaknesses. And then the second part of that is we have to fight sin along one, alongside one another. Don't be okay if a brother or sister is caught in sin, man. Graciously go to them. Hey, man, I, I saw how this hat went down. Let's talk about this. Can I pray with you on this? Gentle rebukes. That's part of the one another's. We have to fight sin alongside each other. That starts with humility. We have to fight for unity. We have to fight sin along one, alongside each other. And we have to fight for reconciliation. Like love covers a multitude of sins. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin against you. If I do, Lord willing, the Spirit convicts me and I go to you. There are times where I might say something or not say something enough. Or maybe I didn't say it loving or caring enough. Hey, open door. Please let me know. The last thing I want is a brother or sister to just sit here for months upon months and just in their stomach, every time I'm talking, all they can think about is how I've wronged them. Help a brother or sister out and go to them. If somebody has wronged you, and reconcile. Work through it. I told somebody the other day that my job, most of my time um, over the last few years of, of pastoral ministry has been sitting with people and working through conflict. Hey, this person sinned against me. Hey, I didn't, uh, you know, they said this. Y'all, I kid you not, most of those instances happened years ago. They've been in a community group for five years together. And all of a sudden, the community group blows up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what has happened? So we go and we sit down. We get the whole group together. Hey, where are we at? Who's sinned against one another? How can I serve you? And after an hour of just weeding through of, well, it was this, and we didn't get called back on this, and the group switched to this night, and we felt unheard of. You know what all of that leads to? Three years of somebody holding on to something they were fearful to go to that person. They were wrestling with shame. They're holding on to it. Now all of a sudden it's turned into an us problem. Where the group's like dismantling and people are frustrated and walls of hostility go up. And Jesus says, I came to destroy those walls of hostility. You no longer, as brothers and sisters, have to walk in that. You need to be okay with sinning against one another, but not staying there. Does that make sense? You can't walk on eggshells with everybody. You're going to sin against one another. Be okay with not being perfect. Let's just not stay that way. Work through your sin and your arguments. That's what Paul says we have to do. We have to fight for reconciliation. And you can forgive your brothers and sisters because Christ has forgiven you. The peace, the prince of peace... He came to, to dismantle, to destroy the wall of hostility, to make a new race. 
And I don't know where you land in that. I asked you earlier, is he your peace? You have to wrestle with that today. If he's not, let's work through it together. If he is, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters? It could be family. It could be this family. It could be people from years ago that you need to wrestle with. And I know this. God is big enough to handle any of those. It could be years of trauma. It could, it could go back 30-something years. Do you realize God's big enough to handle that for you? Do you realize he doesn't want you wrestling with shame or guilt? Why do I know that? Because he went to the cross for all of that. So that you would taste and see of his goodness and his forgiveness and be able to forgive others. Father, I, I pray for our time this morning. I thank you that, um, real simple, I celebrate our children being in here today. And I know there were big words used and lots of, of talking, 32 minutes of talking. Like, I, I know that. That's a lot for our kids. But just, just the, the simple, beautiful truth that you can reconcile enemies, I also know that the gospel can penetrate the hearts of of young and old at the same time. So any of our children that have questions, Lord, I pray that, that you'd, you'd give strength to mom and dad not to feel like they have to have the right answers, but to just enter into conversation with them. The little patterns of, of the footsteps like that. I love it. Our children need to see that it's okay to not be okay. They actually need to see mom and dad fight, but fight fairly with reconciliation and restoration as the goal. Why? Because Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. They need that. They don't need to walk around on eggshells and know that they can't fight. And they know that they can't, um, that they feel like they have to be perfect. So Lord, would you just speak to our children today? This is new. Just anything, anything any nuggets of truth that they can cling to? Would you just, man, would you open up eyes, give new hearts? And then for, for the old folks in the room, would you help us? We need you. Over and over again, we try and we fail. We try to do things on our own. Would you just help us, Lord? Would you be our peace this morning? we be reminded that we've been reconciled back to you. And if somebody is here, not a Christian, man, would you, would you just sweep them off their feet this morning? Would you woo them to yourself? They put their faith